Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. everybody welcome to the dcast episode 77 i'm with abhijit chanda today from india how are you doing abhijit hey i'm doing great how are you doing i'm doing good thanks for having me on no problem um yeah uh abhijit is a skeptic blogger and a podcaster based in india he's also a dj and musician or part-time used to dabble um i want to ask you a lot about that he hosts the Rationable podcast, uh, which can be found at berationable.com. Is rationable mm-hmm. a word or did you make that up? I found it on one website. Like I think it was Free Dictionary where it's this archaic word, which apparently means a cross between reasonable and rational. I haven't found it on any other website, but so I'm, I'm claiming it for myself. Unfortunately, the domains has been taken as well, like just rationable.com. So it had to be be rational. I don't know who th- figured that one out. Yeah, no, but, it's catchy. It works. Yeah. I think it works. Yeah. So Plus, uh, yeah. it also means being able to ration out things in sh- in small portions. So I guess there you go, which is important too. <laughs> yeah. um, so which t- what kind of you mentioned uh, just before we started recording a little bit of the music you're into, but you play bass. Is that also correct? Yep, that's my bass right there. There you go. So what kind of tunes, cover tunes and stuff? or um, I'm just going to adjust this a bit. Uh, yeah, so I, I was in a band. Uh, well, I still am kind of in a band. Like we've kind of come together, broken up, come together, broken up and tried different things. We used to play a lot of grunge, uh, alt metal kind of stuff. Um, and now we've kind of shifted into more post-rock ambient kind of stuff like I guess I guess we're getting older I guess and uh, (laughs) and as a DJ I've been I play usually retro disco funk you know stuff from the 60s 70s 80s mostly a little bit of the 90s as well you know a little classic rock as well if I get the chance but yeah so that's my DJ thing and I've got some bass happening and now we're all kind of sitting in our homes so we just kind of record a layer and i've been learning you know program drumming so i've been putting that in and i'm sending recordings out to my bandmates and they record a layer here and record a layer there and we kind yeah, of put it all yeah. together oh, it's fun so so the, you mentioned the locked off so what stage is um india well i'm assuming there's different stages in different areas but um <laughs> how is india doing i know there's about a million cases but that's they do have 1.3 billion people so that's not that many yeah i mean total number versus the number of the population not too bad not right. too bad i mean a million's like nah it's nothing <laughs> but <laughs> but there's been a lot of uh, controversy about this because we've i mean we've been locked down since march the day after my birthday pretty much okay which was on the 22nd. Um, and we haven't, and then we started unlocking like a month, a month, a little bit over a month ago, I think almost two months. And I don't know why, because the numbers were still going up. We are still haven't reached the peak of the first wave. And we started unlocking. So now pretty much everything is back to normal. I don't know how we've done that or why we've done that. It's nice because now I can, or you know, I can shop on Amazon. But 
<laughs> other than that in the big in the big scheme of things it's really not a good idea and we are still rising steadily we have got you know bigger and bigger numbers coming almost every day and it's not looking good right now the f- problem is that the government is now saying that because we only have about 25000 deaths which is not bad mm-hmm. i guess yeah um or at least that have been reported and have been made public now there are conspiracy theories and i'm not i'm not one to subscribe to conspiracy theories but the lack of reliability of those numbers is right. deeply troubling like i really i don't know it doesn't seem realistic when you have first world countries with much more advanced medical systems and infrastructure than we do they they've got higher numbers than we have and i don't know how we're managing because our whole medical infrastructure is right is so maybe other than inadequate. if it's not a conspiracy maybe it's just bad reporting or different different issues like that like bad uh keeping of the yeah, data it could be a perhaps. variety of things yeah i i mean i don't know because there have been that we we only have hypotheses right now we only have conjecture because we don't really know how the numbers are coming in because the reporting is, reporting is a problem because i don't know i don't think there's a consistent reporting infrastructure as far as all the hospitals that are treating covid patients i um the doctors are also i have heard now this is of course hearsay so it's also not reliable information that some doctors have been asked to write death certificates that are not which don't claim covid deaths also there are lots of i mean a lot of india i think a majority of india is out of reach of major hospitals and a lot of people living in the deep rural states and areas are not are miles away many miles away from the nearest medical facilities that could be available to them so there could be people out there who are sick who are very unwell who have, who might have died who we've not, haven't even heard of because we don't know if they've even had covid in the first place our testing is also woefully inadequate so we don't really have real numbers as far as tests are concerned either because Yeah, it's a tough thing to, and I know everybody's debating about these topics currently, what what, doesn't matter what country you're from, really, but especially in the United States as well, of course, just because of all the political hubbub there. But um, it seems like one of those things where we're going to have to look back on this a couple years in the future to really get the the full story, because it's hard to keep track of all this stuff as it comes out. And it's, it's, it's happening in real time, right? And it's a yeah, new absolutely. thing. It's a new pandemic, so we're 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 dealing with just just like how everybody um, is up in arms about the WHO and the, the information that comes out, and whether it's true or false, and uh, that they contradict themselves sometimes. But I mean, there we're we as humans are trying our best with the knowledge that we have. So um, there's going to be some issues along the way, but uh, it's uh, it's a it's a move. It's it's discovering day by day the the data and and. Uh, uh, and analyzing it of course exactly that's the that's the important bit we really like nobody on this planet really knows how to deal with this because most of us have never experienced a pandemic at this scale before i mean the very few <laughs> were around for the 1918 uh pandemic yeah. so we 
we honestly, and back then, of course, the medical infrastructure, the scientific knowledge that the human race has had as a collective was very, very, you know, it was minuscule compared to what we know now and how we can deal with things. And we are still screwed. Yes. And and the communication is, is obviously way better than it was before. I mean, we have doctors from different countries that are able to Skype with each other and, and, you know, share information uh, as it comes out and what's, what's happening in their countries. So exactly. Um, so your origin story, we need to know more about this guy. Um, I'm going to quote you first from your website. I've spent most of my life being a gullible, nerdy, sci-fi loving kid, allowing bad ideas and bullshit to permeate my worldview. I wasn't fanatical about anything, but I believed anything was possible. I can kind of relate to that quote. So can you tell us more about Mm -hmm. why or what type of stuff you believed and how you switched that around? Well, I... I've been very fortunate to have been brought up in a house filled with books. Like we've had books all over the place and a huge variety of books as well. I mean, including Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. I've had books on human evolution, books on human mythology. Well, obviously, which other species has mythology? (laughs) Um, And about animals. And I've always had an interest in biology and animals and science. I I remember watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos when it used to come out on our national television broadcast system, uh, Doordarshan, back when I was seven or something. And so I remember watching that. I remember I bought the book when I was old enough to read thicker books. (laughs) I still have it here, actually. Um, And I bought, like, and I've gone through several versions of it. I downloaded illegally the uh, pirated version of the TV show because there was no other way to watch it back yeah. in the 90s and then I've managed to then of course I've I've like I've watched it on whatever streaming platforms I could so I've I've definitely given the Carl Sagan Foundation a quite a chunk of my money um <laughs> uh but the but the problem was that we also used to discuss a lot of philosophical ideas like, you know, maybe ancient technology. My family has always been very into homeopathy. We've had Ayurvedic medicines and preparations since we were kids. So along with all of this interesting scientific, you know, information that we have always valued, there's also a lot of misinformation that we have just taken for granted because it's just something we've been brought up with, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's been everywhere. So I never took any of that for granted until, until I started doing my, I went to the UK to study for uh, my master's in professional writing. And I was thinking of writing a sci-fi book. So my, my lecturer, he said that, why don't you, try writing a sci-fi book about, you know, ancient humans who got the technology to escape the planet. They've gone to another planet and you discover new life. It's first contact, but oh my God, it's humans. It's the most, you know, it, it, it should be the most ridiculous thing that we encounter is more humans out there. (laughs) And I said, that's true. It's, it's a novel way to look at it because in Star Trek, we just kind of take it for granted that, you know, you go somewhere else, everybody looks kind of human. It's all good. So I, st- but I wanted to do like a hard sci-fi, like, you know, something like Isaac Asimov Wood or Arthur C. Clarke, like those guys are my heroes. Yeah. So I tried, I wanted to write something which is based on solid science, but maybe it exists in a gap of the unknown currently, which is where the best sci-fi is really. And so I looked up 
ancient aliens. I looked up ancient technology and I found nothing. Like I was like, I was like, I'm sure there was a, I mean, this, I mean, we made movies like Stargate on how the aliens came down and helped the Egyptians. There's got to be something to the it. Na- the Nazca no. lines didn't do it for you. You didn't think that those Nazca <laughs> lines were uh, drawn by paint brushes from the skies or whatever. I would have, I did. I, we used to discuss that uh, guy, what, Eric Von Daniken. Yeah. Um, you had Brian Dunning on your show. And yep. uh, so I, I listened to that episode of Eric Von Daniken and it was amazing because that's exactly the kind of stuff that I'd been thinking for like the last decade. And when he started saying it, I was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so yeah, so that was like my first moment when I was like, okay, like I have a lot to learn. There's a lot of stuff out there, which I've evidently had the wrong idea about. Then it came, then it was Richard Dawkins. And I watched a clip of his when he said homeopathy is bunk. And I was like, wait, I've been taking that stuff since I was a kid. Like my, my parents have been taking it. They had the little vials sitting around all over the place. And so after like, that was when like the avalanche started and I started listening to podcasts like the skeptics guide and Skeptoid and a bunch of others. And it just, it blew my mind. Like everything that I had thought I had believed in, or at least taken for granted that they worked, were actually bunk. And the more I learned about the skeptic movement and about how to think skeptically, the more I began to realize that a lot of the problems, I wouldn't even say a majority, but a lot of current, the problems in today's world of people getting conned is because there's a lack of critical thinking that we humans don't like to think critically because it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. You have to learn new things and you have to change your perceptions and your belief systems and kind of twist them around. So I began to realize that this, this was... The, this was something that if I could learn a layperson who doesn't have a science background, who is just, who's just into sci-fi, but a, definitely a science enthusiast, if I can figure out how to think critically, I'm sure anyone can. Like, I'm not the smartest kid on the block. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I've, I've felt as stupid as pretty much anyone would probably feel, probably more so at different points of time. Right, right. Um, no, that, that's interesting. I can relate to some of that uh, narrative. I mean, with me, it was a lot of early 2000s YouTube documentaries and stuff like that that got me as a teenager thinking, you know, maybe George Bush had something to do with 9-11 or maybe, you know, but then it was more of just actually learning more about geopolitics or reading more and getting a better scaffolding mm-hmm. and overview of how the world works and what is reasonable, what is not, what is likely and what is not likely. Like I'm open to all these possibilities of say alien species and that, but um, I just want, you know, someone on Twitter the other day said to me, does a UFO need to land in your backyard for you to believe? <laughs> I'm like, well, sorry, I just need something concrete. That's all. And um, those things are very elusive to find those concrete um, pieces of evidence. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of India specifically, um, Mm -hmm. when I just mentioned like some of the things I used to believe, I also used to believe a lot in some of those guru guys like Satya Baba, um, and the Buddha boy from Nepal, that documentary, I don't know if you remember (laughs) that, um, things like that, like breatharians and, and those kind of things. And I wouldn't say, I don't want to say I believed it. I just, I was very, very open to it. 
And uh, mm -hmm. it was also sometimes hard to find strong evidence against it in the sense that the reportings were often disputed or it's, uh, you know, uh, not a lot of journalists really would go directly to these people other than the Buddha boy. I think they did have a BBC documentary actually film him. Do you remember what the conclusion was with that guy? I, I know that he, uh, again, speaking for a lot of these uh, guru guys, there's a lot of abuse or rape and murder charges. There's always some mm. things that are, that are there. Um, you know, it, like off the bat, they're always attention seekers, it seems as well. But then there's always these like criminal investigations, um, do you have anything to say about um, any of those gentlemen? Yeah, I, uh, well, as far as the Buddha boy, or as we call him, Buddha, it's a little bit more of a punchy name, but he's supposed to be the reincarnation, reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, apparently. I honestly, I haven't kept up with that story. I know that the Dalai Lama is actually has, for a significant period of time, uh, set up shop uh, in India. Uh, because of the whole Tibet situation. So there is, uh, so he does stay and I've kind of, I visited the, you know, the, the stupas and the schools and stuff like that from around the areas where he has stayed. Um, but as far as gurus and pundits, a lot of them I find to be manipulative and well, there, there is contention as far as Satya Sai Baba who I think you were speaking about. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is some, there might be something to that. I'm not really sure because, well, he, he passed away a while back. Well, something to that as in, is in his like sleight of hand or like conjuring items or what, what is the, um, cause I know yeah, he had a lot one, of sleight of hand going on and yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. He did. This is the one with the, this is the guy with the big Afro. Yeah. Uh, really cool hair. Happy. I really, I really liked his <laughs> yeah. hair. Yeah, for sure. But there are lots of videos out there which show very clearly how he has created, you know, these little bits of ash from the ash pellets that he's had in his hand, that how he's so-called managed to lay a golden egg out of his mouth. Um, there's been a lot of these videos and everybody thinks it's a miracle except for the people who can really look at it and, you know, say like, okay, this guy is really, he's not up to anything good for that matter of course he is you don't even need to do these kinds of tricks to be seen as a holy man in this country you can just build a reputation i know a few uh, names are slipping by me right now but there are definitely quite a few who haven't really done anything that fantastical to be able to you know convince his followers that they're godmen like even uh, I'm going to have to remember this guy. Uh, well, see, uh, more people having like not so much miracles, but just like philosophies that end up developing a following, but they still take advantage yeah. of people or are still. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you're going to have to excuse me one second. I need to, I need to look this guy up because yeah, look he's, it up. He's I'll talk while you look definitely... it up or something. Um, yeah. I'll plant some other ideas in your head because um, as we're speaking of these guru guys, um, mm -hmm. I wanted to know more about how you would describe the the believers in it. Are they? Is it? Uh, could be any average person, or is it? Are there religious ideological tendencies that lead that lend themselves to belief in this, or uh, do the does the uh, religious thought make up in India actually go against some some of it, or 
how are those things related? Because the, the, we're talking about India, we're talking about 80% Hindu, just for people who don't know, 14% Muslim, and then there's a mix of all kinds of other religions, Christians, Sikhs, and Buddhists, and, and whatnot. So um, yeah. how do those religious thoughts link up to the idea of these gurus and the miracles and that? Well, uh, the I, I just figured out who I was yeah, talking about, was so I'll come back to that. But the important thing is to understand is that Hinduism is is a is a really diverse religion. Like it doesn't have a single book or Doctrine a single or ideology. Yeah, yeah. Right. It is a collection of books. There are several Vedas. There's the Upanishad. There's the Bhagavad Gita. There's the Ramayana, which are all these epics and mythology and scriptures all kind of rolled into a whole series of books. So, and we have thousands of gods and because, and a lot of the gods are just reincarnations or different versions of one God. Like, you know, you have who is a female God and you've got her evil alter ego called Kali who is, who is worshipped primarily in, you know, in the Eastern India. Both of them are worshipped, but they are two different forms of the same person. So the same Brahma, who is the creator of everything, basically, of the universe, he's got several different versions and avatars as... Where that's where the word avatar actually comes from. It comes from that Sanskrit word of the different versions of different gods, the different visages of them. So it's really hard to pin down a single ideology. Like every, every village, every township, every temple has a slightly different version of Hinduism. So it's really, it's really hard to pin down what exactly the belief system has and what it holds. It really is much more than the Abrahamic religions. It's much more diversified and dependent on the people who are teaching you that religion, the priests who you follow. So almost every family has a certain priest that they go to, to consult. And he's been handed, his hierarchy and his, uh, his heirs have been doing it for generations. And each family kind of follows that as well. So when you're getting married, you have to go to your pundit and you have to get your horoscope made and they'll understand which star you were born under and which planet was in here and there and come up with an entire timeline of what the best time for you to get married and what kind of person to get married to, et cetera, et cetera. This is Vedic astrology. Is is it somewhat different from the Western version of it? It's very different. I I think it's it's a completely different it's a ball game altogether. Hmm. Yeah. And this has really been brought down like traditionally for you know for thousands of years. Right. So in that manner, when it comes to that, when you have these gurus who come out, there are people who believe them, there are people who don't believe them. There are people who follow them and think that they're, you know, that they are God's own children, and there are people who don't. And now, are they accepting of one another or is it a big, is it a big problem? Like, does it cause a lot of contention that there are believers and non-believers or is it more of a, you choose to, or you choose not to? In that way, I think, you know, Hinduism within itself is much more tolerant as far as what you believe in, how you believe and who you follow. And so these, these, a lot of these gurus who have come up, who are Sadhguru, who I was talking about earlier, we have Baba Ramdev, we have Osho Rajneesh, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. who is who has made a huge impact, especially with the international audience. Sadhguru has also been followed by a lot of people, um, and of course, you know, the people who the Beatles followed, and you know that kind of stuff. So there's yeah. there is a huge variety of them, and there's a huge diversity in their ideologies and what they teach. Unfortunately, most people think that even if we don't follow them, they got to be, they've got to have some of that stuff, right? Which Ah, is where the problem happens. So you have Sadhguru who is, who's got a slightly Americanized accent. He's definitely spent a lot of time abroad. He's spoken all over the world. He has his own website. He's got his own merchandise. He's got his own Ayurvedic treatments and, you know, nonsense cures. But when it comes to certain philosophical things within life, he makes sense. Like Osho Rajneesh, he made sense with a lot of things that he said. These are not things that are revolutionary by any means. If you think about it for five minutes, you probably come up with the same solution. But if he comes up with before, comes up with that before his followers do, then obviously, you know, he... God told him. Oh yeah, and that, that 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 describes me as a teenager, just getting into Eastern philosophy. Where a lot of people have this in the West, they they discover Alan Watts or they discover the Dalai Lama or Krishnamurti, as example, Jiddu Krishnamurti, yeah. not UG Krishnamurti. I'll make that very clear <laughs> that I <laughs> I know they had a rivalry in that, but I was on the Jiddu side. So uh, rest mm-hmm. in peace to both of them. I guess they're both uh, now uh, gone, but um um. That is interesting that, uh, well, Krishnamurti as one example was uh, someone who was called a guru, but he denied those uh, claims and said, you know, just call me the speaker. Just listen to what I'm saying and see if it agrees with you. And I don't think he, for example, had too much controversy um, as far as manipulating people and that kind of thing. So um, uh, that was good. Also, you know, um, this was a confusing thing for me to learn today when I was researching some of this stuff is that there was this gentleman who was killed in 2013 by, he was murdered by, um, I don't know who, some men on motorbikes and he was an anti-superstition um, yeah. activist and he was trying, his name yeah. was uh, Narendra Dabolkar, is that how you Dabolkar. say it? Yeah. And so he was murdered in 2013. And I guess maybe you can tell us a little bit more about him. But I was confused to learn that there's another gentleman named Narendra, who is also a um, popular uh, rationalist and skeptic who has not been killed, but he has been attacked or his brake lines were cut, he, he said. And so maybe that's a testament to, again, how many people are in India that names obviously overlap sometimes. <laughs> Our prime minister's name is Narendra. So, oh, you know. okay. There you go. <laughs> There you go. But so what can you tell us about the gentleman who was uh, unfortunately killed in 2013? Was he popular? Was he? Well, he was definitely quite a pioneer when it comes to uh, the skeptic movement or as Indians prefer to refer to it, the rationalist movement. So he has an organization who, uh, which is at this point of time trying to, uh, be, do a lot of activism and get laws passed to protect people from things like black magic and harmful superstition. Uh, in fact, I think the person, I'm not too well versed with this person's work, but I do know that there is, uh, there's a Dr. Shantanu Abhyankar, who I've also interviewed for my podcast, who actually works in that organization. Um, and most recently, uh, I'm, in fact, I met Dr. Abhyankar when he was presenting a white paper at uh, 
CSICon in Vegas in 2018. And I realized that they had done enough work to be able to push the Maharashtran legislature. So Maharashtra is a, a state in Western India. So the Maharashtran government had passed a legislation protecting people from harmful superstition and black magic practices and harmful religi- uh, harmful rituals, so to speak, um, which can be used against widows, which can be used in a, a number, a variety of ways to take advantage of people and suck money out of them or at least cause trauma in some way, shape or form. How much that law has been implemented is, of course, questionable, but the very movement that they have managed to get a law passed to protect people yeah. and give them a way to fight back against these superstitious practices is, was groundbreaking. So this gentleman was, was intrinsically involved, uh, integrally in, involved in this movement in fighting against those who promoted black magic and used rituals of a variety of sorts to manipulate people. And that is why he apparently pissed off some rather dangerous people who were obviously benefiting greatly from the superstitions they were peddling and the rituals they were using to manipulate people and had to pay the ultimate price for it. Um, there's another gentleman who's, again, name I'm not, is not uh, coming on. It's me, probably right? Narendra. Uh, it's probably Narendra. It could be. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was interviewed by Seth Andrews on the Thinking Atheist podcast uh, quite a while back, actually. He is a gentleman who also has received death threats to the point where now he's had to take asylum, I think, in Norway. Wow. Because he, there was a, apparently the statue of um, Mary somewhere in Kerala, which is this, one of the southernmost states in the country. And Mary was crying tears of blood. Okay, this is different from the Jesus statue that was crying water? Because there's another incident. Maybe I'm confusing two things, but... So this was a Mary crying blood thing? I think this was Mary crying tears of blood. Okay, could be. Um, (laughs) It could have been slightly mixed up. Either way, (laughs) the point is that they found... I mean, it was a miracle. It was declared a miracle by the Vatican, even, I think. It was a Catholic church. And there was a lot of ruckus. And then, but then there was an investigation brought in to see what exactly was going on. And they found that there was a sewage line leaking behind the statue. And the sewage had leaked through the statue and had come out at the point, at the thinnest point in the plaster, which was around the eyes. Yep. And that was what was dripping down and people were kissing it. People were putting it on their faces. And this guy put out a health hazard saying, you know, you guys, this is good. This could be dangerous. This could lead to, you know, people getting sick, uh, people dying, whatever it is. It needs to be corrected and it needs to be cleaned up and you can't let people in there. And he exposed it. Obviously, the Catholic Church was not happy about that, especially the Indian ones. And they, he started receiving death threats. He started receiving all sorts of other threats and curses. You know how it is. You know. Until it came to the point where he just didn't feel safe in this country anymore and he had to leave. He had to take asylum. So right. when it comes to pushback against rationalism, yes, in India, it can be quite extreme. Like when we look at, you know, more orthodox Islamic countries, uh, 
like in Tunisia, there was a lady who apparently mocked the Quran uh, and is now been sentenced to jail. When we talk about things like that, and we, you know, we reprimand Islamic, you know, Orthodox countries for allowing these kinds of blasphemy laws to exist. Yeah. But we are not much better than that. We've, we don't even have, we might not have blasphemy laws, but we have lynching. We have assassinations. We, it's, it's, it happens all the time. You have, uh, and even more recently, especially when soon after Narendra Modi came into power, he banned the sale of, uh, he banned the slaughter of cows, basically, across the country, except for, with the only exception of serving beef and that too only in high-end restaurants, etc. Mm. And it came to a point because uh, whenever there'd be Muslims, because the Muslim people in India, they don't mind eating beef. In fact, most of the country eats beef. Even in the South, you have Hindus who have no problem eating beef. Mm. You have in the Northeast where you have people who are also Hindus who have no problem in eating beef. So, but if in a more orthodox, you know, and especially a place which has more following of, of Prime Minister Modi, people actually would suspect a person of having killed a cow. No evidence, no actual meat involved. And would just go to his house and lynch him and kill him. And it's happened multiple times. This has happened several times over the last several years. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of communal disharmony when it comes to especially extremist Hinduism in this country at this point of time. And the fervor of this extremism, and it's now, of course, become synonymous with nationalism, because if you're not Hindu, then you're not a nationalist and Right. It's just, it's gotten really out of control now. So it's gotten even worse. Now, are you also an atheist or do you have any opinion on religious belief or are you religious yourself? I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not religious at all, evidently. <laughs> and I am an atheist. I, for, the most, for most of my life, I've kind of considered myself an agnostic. Right. Because my family has, uh, I, know, I know the whole, you know, the you know, the nuances of the word atheist and the word agnostic and how they can, you know, Gets in I the know weeds. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. So I, I would call myself an agnostic atheist to go really, you know, use Specific. the words properly, but I'm just going with the common uses of those words. Yeah. Um, because my family is a, from a reformist, like they belong to a reformist sect of Hinduism, which was started by a gentleman called Raja Ramohan Roy who saw a lot of the harmful ritualism and practices that Hindus were carrying on, especially, I mean, I think this is around the the 1700s, 1800s. And he did a lot of work to try and counter it. So there's a practice where called Sati, where a widowed bride would have to sit on the funeral pyre or lie on the funeral pyre of her husband and be burnt with him. Yeah, it doesn't seem very logical. doesn't seem helpful to anybody. It was, I I know, and I'm sure it still happens in our country, but Mm -hmm. it was thanks to him that he got the British to push the legislation to make it illegal and has been illegal ever since. Uh, He has been, he was in, you know, 
he had read a variety of religious books. He had written, he'd read the Quran, he'd read the Bible, he'd uh, read, read Buddhist texts, he'd read the Quran. I said that before. Uh, Torah, he read it twice. Especially. He read it twice. <laughs> he probably read it several times. So he knew he had learned Arabic and he'd, you know, he'd read it in the original text. Um, I think he even learned Aramaic and probably read the Bible in its original form as well. And he formed this religious reformist sect out of that, taking all the good bits from the different religions and from Hinduism as well, and discarding things like casteism, uh, idol worship, you know, rituals of any sort. So now these, so now my family has been pretty liberal. We don't have any particular, you know, festivals that we celebrate we just fest you know we celebrate whatever festivals we encounter from whichever yes. religion that we find to be fun so we celebrate diwali and holi and christmas and you know everything else sure so pretty inclusive that's yeah uh, you mentioned the caste system is that i know that's um has a long history but is it still pervasive or is it more in certain areas or is it um, embedded into the country at all still or the best way to say it's it's very much like institutionalized racism. It's become institutionalized. I was going to say, yeah, maybe that. Uh, yeah, I could see that uh, explanation. Okay. Hmm. So this is still widely prevalent across the country. People like to think that it's gone away, but it's just gone deeper into a person's psyche. Like most of my life, I haven't encountered it. But and a lot of people don't until they want they need to get married now all of a sudden is the woman or the man you want to marry which caste is he from and that is a problem with a lot of people because if he's, if he's not of the same caste it's you know, they probably call it off and if he's one of the lowest castes which are called dalits the untouchables then it's totally off so that system still prevails across the country in almost every way that we look at it i mean even like the Dalits, the untouchables are the ones who are supposed to handle dead bodies, who are supposed to handle sewage and cleaning up, etc. And nobody else is willing to do such things. And nobody is willing to like, I mean, they're, and they're just stuck in that because they've, it's very hard for them to rise out of that and be included in regular society. There are lots of cases where that has happened where a lot of Dalits have, you know, they've moved to schools and colleges and they've studied their whole lives and they've gotten degrees and they've started working. But as soon as somebody finds out that they're from that lower caste, they are suddenly shunned. They are ignored. They, are, they lose opportunities. It just, it's intrinsic. It's built into the system. And now, this just, shows my, my, this just shows my ignorance or um, lack of education. But how does one determine, how do you find out which caste somebody is, is from? How is that determined? It's often related to your last name. Oh, okay. So, a lot of the last names in India are caste-based. So certain last names are only Brahmin, certain, you know, last names are only, you know, Kshatriya, which is the warrior class. Hmm. And so the Dalits also have a group of last names, which, you know, claim it. So that, right. So like you no said, escaping. through marriage, that's how, that's how that has, has uh, stayed. In yeah. And it's, hier- it's, yeah. it's, it's hereditary. So you your kids will be the same caste as you 
and for forever and ever. Hmm. So there's really no escaping from it. Even if you are educated, even if you're capable of doing other things, a majority of people will just ignore it and just see you for the, the cast you belong to and will just ignore any attempts that you try to make to get a get ahead in life. Wow. So it is still a very big problem. Huh. Well, let's jump around a little bit. How about mm-hmm. now back to scientific stuff. You you're also into fitness and exercise and on your website you mentioned that there you you have some a lot of good resources on your website and um, things that have changed your mind. What are some things in the fitness world and exercise world um that you've had to debunk for yourself. Oh, keto. Keto, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was, I, 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 I honestly, for most of my life, and I still, I, I'm, I have a horrible, horrible willpower, and I still have a lot of weight that I need to lose, which I still haven't managed to do. So, um, but, you know, I, so for the longest time, I didn't really know what to do. I thought you just have to work out and that's pretty much it. And there was a time when I was younger, in my early 20s, when I used to work out six days a week because I had nothing else to do. Um, I lost a lot of weight. I was pretty fit. Things looked up. Then I got a job and everything went down the drain. So much later when I went moved to the UK, this friend of mine told me about this book called The 4-Hour Body by Timothy Ferris. Yep. And which was very intriguing. And on the whole, it makes sense. Like the four hour body can work. I'm not saying it doesn't. But it also instilled that idea that eating carbs or white carbs is what made you fat. And that kind of stuck with me. I tried that four hour body diet for a while. I couldn't really sustain it because it gets really expensive when you're avoiding the stuff, which is the cheapest, <laughs> like bread yeah. you know, and pasta, which you can get pounds of and tons of for really cheap. Yep. So when you're avoiding that, everything else is expensive by default. It's everything else is more expensive than that. So I couldn't maintain it, but I, that idea stuck in my head. So when I came back to India and I started, you know, just getting on life, I thought I'd start looking it up and I started looking at the specific claims in that book. And I, it kind of connected with the whole keto diet idea. And I started looking that up. And the more I looked, the more I found that there was a lot of science to prove, you know, to support it. There was an article in the Scientific American about how butter isn't that bad for you. There was an article in Time magazine about, you know, butter and eating fat is not that not as bad for you as everybody thought. And so this all these ideas were coming out around that time. Mm-hmm. And Everywhere I looked, and I've got myself into a little bit of a Google bubble, where I would just see just that, just keto everywhere that this is the best way to eat. And I kept, and this kept feeding on itself. So I, you know, I was like, fine, you know what? I don't want to do full keto because I don't like it. But I want to have one zero carb meal a day. And hopefully that'll cut down my whole carb intake. And maybe I'll lose a little weight. Maybe I did. But the thing is, I, there was something just didn't jive with me. And I don't know why that was. But it taught me an important lesson that every week I would look, I would do a dedicated search to look for evidence against keto. Hmm. I was like, what is wrong with keto? Five bad things about keto. I just put in these random searches, you know, searches in Google and see if, what, I, what I came up with. 
And that is around when I got into audiobooks and I discovered this book called Nutrition Made Simple. And I found I was it was one of those great courses on Audible. <laughs> and I was like, oh, finally, like this is done by a registered dietitian. This has got a lot of science. It's all science based. Now, now I'm going to know. Out of that whole book of some 40 odd lectures, she dedicated five minutes to keto as one of the diets. I was like, that's damn weird. But then I learned about carbs and proteins and everything and put together. And then I, I started looking for podcasts because I was like something to get out of the Google <laughs> bubble, yeah. right? Somehow or the other. And I started looking for podcasts and I found, I was looking for nutrition science podcasts. And I found uh, BioLanes, the physique, was it? Physique Science. There's a Physique Science podcast by Lane Norton. And that had a continuous conversation every single week about nutrition science and how it can be used to lose weight and gain muscle, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where I learned about flexible dieting and counting macro, macros and stuff like that. So that was like, that was a revelation that finally snapped me out of my whole keto thing. And I was like, great. Now I know where the science really is instead of all the you know, the pages that I'd keep getting sent to dietdoctor.com or yeah, um, or something. you know, as far as keto and fad diets, I mean, um, to me and my fiance, we have this discussion often because she studied nutrition and wellness uh, recently and just graduated and she um, is kind of into this stuff and she's had her own diet issues as far as digestion and that kind of thing. And so she tried the, the homeopathy type remedies. Um, I forget exactly which ones she had tried, but um, these things she was taking um, and uh, they seemed to make the symptoms worse. And it was this thing where we were thinking are going to get over this hump and then it would be better. Uh, and then she kind of just dropped all the medications and went with her own gut feeling, pardon the pun, um, that was just <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me just eat what I feel like eating, sort of not overthink mm. it and get hyper obsessed with with every little detail about diet and sort of magically her symptoms went away and this this happened about a year and a half ago so she's been fine ever since um and so it's just an interesting thing that i'll probably actually have her on and we'll talk about it a bit uh, because uh yeah you should we just talk about yeah that every diet that seems to come along these fad diets keto turned out to kind of just be one of them. And, and maybe it works for an individual that has a certain issue, um, but it became this thing that everybody was spitting out. And even people that were on keto were like putting sugar in their coffee. Yeah, I'm on keto now. And like, <laughs> you know, it just became this, this, this fad. But um, that's interesting. And I think our little conclusion that me and her have is um, I think it's up to the individual and you have Absolutely. to determine what works for you. There's no one one size uh, fits all solution. Um, but um, everybody seems to have some sort of agenda when they're trying to get you to read a book or listen to something or buy some product, uh, whatever it is. But what about um, yeah. the whole demonizing of meat uh, thing? I know you had a little uh, one episode about that too. Um, you know, the thing they always talk about is barbecuing meat, that charring is what has the cancer in it. So don't char your meat. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, this, is this one of those correlation yeah, well, I, causation things too with, with meat and cancer? There, see, there is there are carcinogenic compounds in charred meat and in processed meat uh, and in cured meat like mm -hmm. bacon and ham. 
And there are carcinogens, but you're not supposed to have this all day, every day. You have it on occasion. That's what it's there for. It's a treat. So you should treat it like one. And if, and I know the, I think it was the WHO that put it up on this list of carcinogenic foods and or items that you consume, along with cigarettes. Oh my God! Like, <laughs> yeah, it went. People went nuts about that, and that's what the what the primary response was, because these. I mean, you if you eat a normal, healthy amount of meat, cooked healthfully and tastefully, as 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 they usually are, you can have it in a casserole or in a bake or in a you know, in a stew or something of that sort, or in India, you have it in curries. It's fine. You have your veggies along with it. And a lot of it counters it because a lot of vegetables have nutrients that fight cancer. And if you have, if you're eating and everything can cause cancer at some point of time, there's like, there's no way that you can avoid it. I mean, you'd end up eating absolutely nothing if that was, if you're trying to avoid cancer, because sometimes cancer just isn't connected with food. Sometimes it's connected with certain things in food. Right. You never know, really. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. Like, well, Dr. Sean Baker <laughs> yes, would have right. something to say about this. Who has also been on my show is the the carnivore diet uh, guy. Oh, uh, of course. So he, you know, <laughs> stay, and hey, if I could do, I mean, I'm a very big meat eater, and I don't tend to like mm. fruit or veggies. Veggies, I will eat over fruit. Fruit, I'm really like never, never really. I can relate to that. Yeah, but. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I sometimes think like I could be, if I had the money, I could be a steak and eggs guy, like every meal of the day. Um, mm. but I, again, I'm no doctor or scientist and I don't know the real effects that that has, but I know there's a lot of people who argue, uh, against, uh, you know, or rather for the carnivore diet. And again, maybe that's a fad or a sort of a shtick or something that, uh, certain people just, it works for them. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll have to track but the thing Dr. Is, Baker, see if he gets cancer. Uh, that's the whole yeah. thing. So, and see, it's not that just meat causes cancer. The, as I said, like there are multiple triggers to it. Cancer is a huge group of diseases that can be cured, cured, well, not cured, but can be yeah. cured. Oh, come on, caused <laughs> by multiple things, and it's not just food. So I'm not just saying. I'm. I mean, if you want to have like a full meat diet all the time, go for it. But the, there is a point where your palate will get very tired of that really quickly. And you right. really crave, like I, when I was doing this very low, no white carb diet, the, I would have sleepless nights dreaming of, well, I don't have sleepless night dreaming, but I'd yeah. lie awake thinking of bread, like what I would yeah. do for a sandwich right now. Yeah. Like just a slice of bread with some butter on it. I would kill for that. Yeah, and I never thought of bread like that before. <laughs> like, I was no, like, because it's so yeah, you're so used to it. Yeah. Uh, what yeah, about so uh, I, yeah, Go ahead. No, so so everything has got its place in in your diet. Like you, there are nutrition. There's nutrition in fruits and veggies that you will not get from meat, no matter how much meat you eat. And there is stuff in fruits and veggies which is very hard to replace meat with. I mean, replace meat. With, yes. So. I mean, there's plenty of protein and a lot of vegetarian protein sources, but they aren't the same as the ones that you get in meat and they take longer to process and you have to eat much larger quantities of that. If you want, if you're like a bodybuilder and you need to take more, you know, consume more protein for that purpose. Yeah. 
but everything's got its place. So the best thing is just do a balanced diet. If you prefer less of something, have less of that, yeah. have more of something else you prefer. But as long as you've got a nice everything yes. goes kind of approach. Back to the, I think it's back to the just being obsessed with it. I think we're always obsessed with optimizing our lives. And maybe that's a bit of a newer trend in the world too, is like the Tim yeah. Ferriss type of thing. Like let's optimize life so we can live to 150 and all this take what whatever, find what we need to take and need to avoid to to become superhuman and maybe that's just a bit of a farce and maybe just like there's a reason why we were born into this world with all these different foods being grown and eaten and that's just because you got to grow and eat them like just eat whatever's around within reason absolutely Take the middle way and absolutely. just not too much candy not too much <laughs> you know <laughs> not too much of anything but just, um, speaking of all of this, uh, what about, can we talk about boosting your immune system? And that's now a big topic, of course, with coronavirus and, um, and the yeah. diet thing and, and homeopathy as well. So, you know, I'll just list a few things that, uh, uh, you know, spices like cumin, coriander, turmeric. I think you had an episode talking about turmeric. Um, yeah. Detoxing, superfoods, vitamin C, all these things, right? Now, is mm-hmm. there, I guess the question, the short form of the question is, is there a way to reliably boost your immune system by ingesting something the honestly uh, i have written i just i just released an episode about this and it's it's my it's on my youtube channel it's also my first proper youtube video which i've just released so cool. fashionable has a youtube channel just yep. okay shameless plug and uh, <laughs> so because this is i mean i've been wanting to write about this for a very long time but because of the pandemic everybody's talking about it this has been like the ultimate punchline for a health product is it'll boost your immune system i've seen it on hand sanitizer yeah like what so it's something that's really started getting under my skin and so I thought I'd just write an article about it. And I just saw that Dr. Harriet Hall, who is also known as the Skeptoc, has just written an article about exactly that for the Skeptical Inquiry magazine. So, and it's, it's very, like, and bottom line, short answer is the best way to boost your immune system is to get vaccinated. That's it. Mm-hmm. That is the only way that you can make your immune system more resistant to diseases without getting sick. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's essentially, it's just a healthy lifestyle in a nutshell. It's getting enough sleep. It's managing your stress, not drinking too much, not smoking at all. I quit smoking five years ago. Congratulations. Drink, okay, thank you. Uh, and I drink occasionally. I can't give up pork or bacon, but I'm, working on cutting that down. <laughs> so as far as the carcinogens are concerned, yeah, not there yet. Um, but yeah, so get enough sleep, eat well, don't drink too much, don't smoke, and just live a healthy lifestyle, get plenty of fluids, exercise right, right, if you right. can. The healthier your body is, the healthier your immune system will be. Of course. Unfortunately, if you have a compromised immune system for whatever reason, if it's a disease, if it's an organ transplant, if it's if you're taking it for any other condition or if it's naturally suppressed for some reason, then no matter what you do, you can't change that, right? You just have to be more careful and you have to hope that everybody else is vaccinated so that you don't get the diseases that you can't get vaccinated for or that you might be more susceptible to for some reason. So 
it's, it's essentially, that's it, vaccines and live a good life and hope that you have a healthy immune system. And if you don't have a healthy immune system, get it checked out by a doctor, do what he says, do what needs right. to be done. Everybody talks about, of course, uh, zinc and vitamin C seem to be the ones that pop up a lot. But vitamin C, I mean, people can look more into this themselves. I forget the name of this book, but there's this book I was... Um, I heard about that uh, just sort of debunking even the whole vitamin industry altogether. And um, I mean, vitamin C was good for pirates to not get scurvy. They would suck on a, a lime. That's yeah. why they call them limeys. They would suck on a lime and they mm-hmm. did that every once a month or something. You would prevent uh, scurvy. But nowadays in our diet, I mean, things are fortified, like foods are fortified. Well, at least speaking for the West or, you know, um, developed countries, I guess. But um yeah, all these different foods are fortified with things that. Uh, so, like you said, if you if you do get a, a balanced uh, diet, you're you you don't really need vitamins unless you have a deficiency. But deficiencies are apparently very rare, or more rare than you would they would have you believe. Um, yeah, deficiencies are pretty rare. Uh, they don't. I mean, except for I think vitamin D is the one thing that most people can be deficient in, especially when you're staying indoors, if you're working in an office and you're not getting enough sun, then yeah, you're not going to get much vitamin D in your system. And it's something I have been deficient in. There's something a lot of people, even in India, have been deficient in, especially because you, if you have dark skin, yeah. then it's, you need more exposure to the sun to be able to get that kind of vitamin D happening, mm. which naturally. But none of us want to be out in the sun. Indians hate the sun. <laughs> you want to stay as, as far inside as possible. Stay in the dark. Right. Uh, we're naturally tanned. What are you going to do? So, uh, <laughs> but speaking but, of um, staying inside, can we talk about these Bakersfield doctors and why they, uh, I forget their names. I don't know you mentioned them too on your podcast, but that was the whole thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was their whole thing is that, with the, you know, the lockdown is bad because we're staying inside. Therefore our immune system is lowered and everybody was running with this. And I was trying to tell people again, as a layman, I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm just, I don't think that staying inside for a month or two is going to reliably affect your immune system that much. Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's probably not going to. So I, I'll get to that in just a second. Sure, I just wanted yeah. to finish that point on vitamin D. Yes. So vitamin D is a good thing to supplement with. You should get your levels checked, make sure that it's in the, in a ballpark, you know, and vitamin B12, if you're a vegetarian or if you don't have much non-vegetarian in your diet, if you have a low amount, then make sure that you get some fortified cereals or something like that and get that level maintained and checked out frequently. Other than that, you've got a varied diet, you're good to go. As far as these Bakersfield doctors is concerned, because I've, uh, I added that in my episode as well, just dipped into it, but there are lots of people who have done a much more extensive debunk of what they've said. And by the time I managed to get to the video, it had been deleted off YouTube. Maybe that's a good thing. Some things YouTube does is good. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I was really happy when they took that down. Yeah, and the pandemic thing they took yeah. down too. Which yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank goodness. But from the clips that I did manage to watch from other independent sources, what they were saying is that if you're staying inside, it weakens your immune system because then you're not encountering the natural uh, diseases that you would encounter on a day-to-day basis, which it doesn't make that much sense because nobody's home is first of all sterile to the point of having I was just going to say it's no not jobs. a panic room it's a uh, exactly. it's home with it's, windows and doors like yeah and you you're ordering in veggies and you might have a pet and they're licking you in the face and you have you know right. family around everybody's loaded with germs it's totally fine so that's one 
thing against them that don't, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And secondly, it, it made me look up something called the hygiene hypothesis, which is still a hypothesis, but there is a decent amount of evidence to support it, to make it considerable in its proposition. So the hygiene hypothesis basically says that uh, to maintain a healthy immune system, you do need to be interacting with a large number of other germs on a day-to-day basis to keep your immune system healthy, which they kind of, they agree with that proposition. The problem is that if you don't encounter these germs, these pathogens on a day-to-day basis, your body's immune system, your immune system starts looking for things to fight and it might not find it. So instead of diminishing its function, what happens is your immune system starts attacking its, your own body. So this is again, a hypothesis. There is a lot of observational data, which does support it. No large scale RCTs or anything of that sort have really been done yet, but observationally, there is a lot of reliable evidence at an epidemiological level to support this hypothesis. So the thing is, this is what is, so the hypothesis is that this lack of exposure to germs and other pathogens may be the reason why Western countries, which have much higher levels of hygiene, might be a reason why there are more allergies and autoimmune diseases which occur in these countries. Because lack of exposure to germs doesn't mean it suppresses your immune system. It makes your immune system go haywire and start attacking your own body or the things that you consume. So either way, first of all, they don't, the Bakersfield guys, they don't have any evidence to support their proposition. None whatsoever. It is a truthiness feeling, you know, like Stephen Colbert likes to talk about truthiness. truthiness. So, So it's kind of, it has a truthy feeling to it because intrinsically, instinctively, it feels like, that kind of makes sense, except it's not supported by any evidence from there. And in fact, the evidence supports exactly the opposite. Right. And their hair looks like from the doo-wop <laughs> era from the fifties, like it's too much gel. Like I don't trust somebody with that much gel in their hair. <laughs> Ironically, I don't think they get out enough. Exactly. <laughs> um, this kind of relate. I mean, maybe we could wrap things up a little bit with um, the anti-vax movement in general. Or um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, Bill Gates and the whole. Maybe we could quickly debunk um, the thing in India with the polio vaccine, where everybody says uh, that uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was kicked out of India this uh, for this. Um, the kids that got. Uh, I don't even know what the claim actually is. To be fair, is that they. <laughs> they were paralyzed? Something like that? I, I'm not sure about this one. I haven't heard the story. But one thing is for sure, I know several organizations that are working, still working with the Bill Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah, the, it's false so, that they were ever kicked out. I know that much. But yeah, yeah. Um, even the, that, that the thing was caused, that the paralysis, paralysis was caused by the vaccine, I think is not factual because I think it's just some sort of expected number um, maybe we're both talking out of school here, but it's it was some data issue that they 
used to prove that, oh, look, this polio vaccine caused uh, this paralysis or what, whatever. But um, there is... Um there is there is a little bit of evidence i mean i've i've only touched this topic where the polio vaccine has uh, a potential for actually infecting its uh infecting people again even after they've had the vaccine it's like one in two million so, or something like that like it's very yeah, yeah so it's a very rare incident and it usually happens in places which have very low levels of hygiene and bad sanitation and dirty water and defecation in open spaces, etc. So this does happen in certain places in Africa, in India, that sort of, that is quite, that's, I mean, that's quite common because our sanitation levels are still pretty bad on the whole, especially in rural India. So there is a lot of open defecation. There's a lot of, you know, untreated water that people are coming in contact with. People are bathing in the Yamuna River, which is right next door, which runs through my city, New Delhi. Um, and it's basically, it's a, it's a one massive sewage line. And I don't, but the problem is when you take the polio vaccine and it goes through your system and it comes out of your feces and what they, whatever little bit is alive has a tendency of mutating into a different strain and reinfecting people. Hmm. So that is, but that is, again, it is a very small, it is, uh, the incidences, the number of incidences of these are very small. People are trying to find solutions towards this as well. And the numbers will continue to go down as sanitation and hygiene levels improve. Right. So, so the infrastructure is a big component to this then as well. I mean, India yeah. is obviously developing rapidly as far as um, we look at things like high-speed internet and whatnot, different things. I mean, in the next few decades, um, do we expect India to to develop um, quicker and quicker? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You say you're optimistic about that front? Like, um, Well, I think as a net effect, I think we'll probably, we are headed in the right direction. Unfortunately, with the current government, I don't, I don't get too much into the politics, but as at least with the initiatives I've seen, they say the right things, they want to do the right things, but more than actually doing them thoroughly, they are more concerned with how it looks to the rest of the world. Wait, politicians and government? This is who you're talking. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, it's 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 so like the, I mean he's talked about digital India and supporting startups, but that kind of stuff is really very superficial because how on earth is a farmer supposed to start using a laptop or the internet? You can't expect that sort of he thing. Needs to a happen. T3 he, connection in his backyard, and then uh, <laughs> good to go. Yeah, he wishes. Like we we barely have dial up down there. We barely have phone lines down there. How the hell are you going to get into? So is the, this? Um, I think I read a couple different stories that there's these certain really rich individuals that are contributing a lot of the cash to the capital to achieve these goals um, in conjunction with government or like, is it in the private sector some of the development or? There is uh, there. I mean, for example, the Ambani's who have developed geo, which is uh, India's new internet service. Uh, they have done a lot of work in expanding their networks and have, I think for pretty much one year, their mobile phones, the broadband, they had 4G broadband connectivity for free. Wow. Like 
So for a year, and that made everybody push their prices down. It changed the landscape completely. And they have managed to get a lot of connectivity to more remote places in India. There has been a lot of contributions, have been a lot of contributions. I think Facebook has now started contributing. Uh, Geo, like the Ambani's have started contributing to try and get, you know, improve the connectivity of the more remote parts of India because there is a huge market there. Who wouldn't want to get their hands on that? Yeah. Um, but it's there's a there is a long way to go because our infrastructure in rural India and I used to work in rural marketing, you know, at the beginning of my career about twenty years back, and especially in the really deep villages, it's hard. I don't think they still have twenty. They don't have twenty four hour electricity. Mm-hmm. They have fridges that come built with you know come with built in batteries like truck batteries, which come along with your fridge so that it runs when the power's gone, which is for most of the day. So it's, um, there's a lot that needs to be done. I mean, first and foremost, they need to get sanitation sorted out. This prime minister comes in with the promise that every house is going to have a toilet. They might have, to an extent, built a large number of toilets across the country but not necessarily with the sewage system that needs to go with it. So again, it's more of an optics thing and less of a actual. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So that is a very unfortunately prevalent problem because this is, this is basic stuff. This is hygiene infrastructure. This is power infrastructure, water infrastructure, which every developed country has. And this, and we've been dragging our feet on this for decades and it's, it's about, there's a lot has a lot has improved. I will give them that. Yeah. We have a long way to go and running around playing games of this sort. It just yeah. doesn't get anyone anything. Was there, well, my thinking of China or India, or maybe it happens in both that there was some on the societal level, they were trying to shame people like with sign or like they would take a photo of you if you defecated somewhere and post it up and try to deter people. But how, if, if that, like they need a toilet, they need, they need the infrastructure to, you can't just shame them. They, they don't know anywhere to go. Right. Or depends i don't know if this is in india i do know that there were campaigns against people pissing on walls and you know in the streets in india because in the city there are plenty of places that you can go to take a whiz right you can go anywhere you and most people if you're living in a city you would probably have some sort of house with some sort of sanitation system and unfortunately most people just go on the walls And there was a hilarious campaign, which I kind of support on the whole, where there were these guys who went out in a fire truck of sorts, like it's a a truck with a huge tank of water and would find people pissing on walls and would then hose them down. And like, but that's only in cities. You wouldn't want to do that in the villages because they genuinely don't have a place to go. You have to go out in the fields or something like that's, that's a genuine problem. But in the cities, keeping things clean is kind of necessary. So. <laughs> well, is that a good note to end on? Or what do you think? Is that, uh, so let's, uh, yeah, I wanted to just thank you for your time again. And um, let's remind people where they can find your uh, your podcast. It's berationable.com. It's the Rationable Podcast. And is yeah. Twitter or anything like and that? And now we have a YouTube channel, which is the, the Rationable YouTube channel. But you just look for Rationable on, on YouTube. And it's spelled the way that it sounds. As I think, does it? Is it? Uh, <laughs> I yeah, it no, is. I think it is. I think, yeah. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, so, uh, yeah. Thanks so much again for your time and uh, very enlightening. And uh, I'm going to be staying tuned to the podcast and I hope all you listeners will you. as well. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I had a great time. Thanks. I hope we, we, we talk again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Stay cool. You too, man. Thank okay. you. Take care.